how did the play make you feel? You felt the seat shaking as I stopped. <laughs> like, we did sit next to each other and we shared a tissue. Not a shared a tissue. Luckily, <laughs> luckily I had a spare one. Um, I felt like in lots of places Gareth wrote the words that me and my partner would have said to each other, which is a weird experience to listen to somebody vocalising in a public forum your own experiences. It was uh, it was strange and I thought very good and really powerful, more powerful than I realised it would be, even though I'd read the, a bit of it already. Um, I, yeah, I found it really moving and... Um, overwhelming as you can tell by the fact that I keep saying um I don't know what to say it's just it was extraordinary it was a really powerful experience welcome to a bumper episode of the fertility podcast this is uh, the day after the fertility fest which happened yesterday in London you might have managed to get to it in Birmingham uh, an amazing event and uh, a whole load of discussions and wonderful performances by artists all based around the play The Quiet House. Now I tried yesterday to capture the essence of the day. Uh, there was so much to try and get. I just wanted to give you a little taster of it. So what you're about to hear is some snippets of uh, different performances as well as interviews with some of the artists involved and then just comments from people who were there and you'll be able to hear the emotion from some of the people that were there. Now I have to hold my hand up and say I made a rookie error with my recording attempts so the quality of this recording is not quite as I'd hoped but I really hope it gives you a sense of what the day was about and let's hope it happens again next year. Now, I tried to capture the final discussion of the day, which was which was focusing on egg freezing. And sadly, there wasn't really enough time for everybody to give their opinion on what was obviously and is such a contentious issue. And you'll hear things get quite heated at the end. So I've grabbed Gareth Farr, writer of The Quiet House, the play that the Fertility Fest is all based around, which I saw on Wednesday night. And I blubbed. I, I was actually quite overwhelmed at how going back through that whole injections process I mean I was successful first time round so what struck me was I have no idea how when it doesn't work how that feels but I still felt so much of what was going on yeah now the reviews have been amazing I just want to talk first of all about the potential for this play to go around the UK yeah there's no conversations that I'm aware of at the minute but I would uh, I'd welcome that so much because I think this is such an important issue that's going on on every street in the country you know behind closed doors and I think it represents I hope it represents people who are going through this process I hope it informs and educates and entertains people that aren't and have no knowledge of it I think it's yeah I think it's a global um, uh, story not yeah. just a kind of a national one certainly not just a kind of uh, London centric one or, uh, or, or one for uh, for Birmingham I think there's well there are there are fertility clinics up and down the country which are full of people all feeling um, uh, well a cocktail of emotions that I think they can kind of um, celebrate in some way in the play now I haven't realised I had a quick chat with Gabby the other night that it wasn't autobiographical obviously it's from your experience and yeah. I know the one phrase is today's going to be a good day yeah what I was really keen to know was some of the words that Jess was saying about how she was feeling. Did you chat with Gabby in that sense, um, or was that from your just no, your No, I mean, I, I, I wrote it, to start with, I wrote about 60 pages, and then um, 
threw them away because they felt too much like us. And then I did the same with about another 40 pages. And then once I kind of made the promise not to write up any words that we'd said to each other during the process, then it was came quite easy in a way. Uh, but yeah, no, there's no conversation really. I, but I found that as a challenge to write such a kind of in intimate of female part. I thought that was a really lovely writer's challenge. And yeah, I went for it. And, but I just, I just write about people, ordinary people, um, in extraordinary situations. And I, um, I think they possibly are my thoughts as well and my feelings during it. Obviously, not the kind of the, you know, biological stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I, we were part of the process together, Gabby and I, from start to finish. And you know, there's inevitable autobiographical moments. Yeah, sure. and there, there has to be. There is. I, I've been in denial about that for a long time, and I think it's only seeing it now that I'm realising how close it is to us. Actually. Emotional. Look, I know you've got to go. I just yeah. want to ask one tip from you, as a man who's mm-hmm. been through IVF, to a man who might be going through IVF Correct. or about to start. Just one thing that maybe just first thing that pops into your head. Well, I, the hardest thing I think is talk to people. Um, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it for. Well, I think we were in round two and a half when um, when Gabby took us to a support group, and I just think oh, I'm never going to do this. Please don't make me do this. I hadn't told anyone. I'd spoken about it. I was holding it all inside. I was in a bit of a mess. I was getting a little bit ill, I think, from that, but thinking I was doing okay. We went to the support group and I said, I'm not speaking, Just I'll go to be with you, I'm just going to sit in the corner. If you think I'm being grumpy, I'm not, I just can't do it, I just can't do it. And I think I was the first person to speak and I've not stopped speaking since. And now um, we have a play. Exactly, this is the continuation of that, of that kind of conversation, but um, it's the hardest thing to do. And, and, and that is dealt with in the play, that the character of Dylan just can't do it he can't, and I know that feeling uh, and, it's, and it's just complete anxiety but I mean yeah it's the hardest thing to do but that would be my best piece of advice if you can find someone to talk to Ace, alright, enjoy today Thank you very much Thank you, Thank you. It really moved me more than I thought I had I went to the bathroom to meet Billy afterwards and started crying I think it's the kind of topic that doesn't get touched on very often and I thought it had the potential to be a really beautiful moment and it was for me. Uh, it was kind of overwhelming really just to see how difficult it is for people to have babies you know and kind of the heartache of a couple going through that and how hard it must be if you really want a baby and you can't have one you know and um, you know the volume of drugs the cost the strain on a relationship um, yeah it was pretty intense. I think the most The whether you're male or female, I mean, it's it's so sad that we, as a society, have gone that direction. Why can't we talk about these things? We talk about so much, so many other things, so many other aspects. But why this? Why is this a taboo? It shouldn't be. I'm Kate from the Infertility Network UK, but also lead um, women's voices at the RCAG. I'm going to be chairing this session with Jessica and Gareth, who are going to be reading from their work, and they're also going to be talking about how they came to write it, and about fertility first, and what it is, and what kind of a day you can expect. I think Jessica, you can read first. I opened the newspaper today and saw the headline, Generation X puts work before kids. The first sentence read, they were supposed to have it all, but nearly half the university-educated women in Generation X born between 1965 and 1978 have no children. I was born in 1970. I have a career. I don't have children. 
I guess on the face of it, the statisticians would include me in their hypothesis. In the article, they describe these women, me, as child-free rather than child-less. It's a subtle distinction, but the implication is that we have actively chosen work over having a family. I haven't. My own theory, not statistically proven at all, is that women of my generation who don't have children actually fall into one of three categories. One, women who have a career and don't want children. Two, women who have a career and do want children but can't find the right partner. Three, women who have a career, do want children, do have a partner, but can't get pregnant. As for the women who do have children, well, they've either had to sacrifice their career, or I suppose they must have it all. And frankly, if there is any woman out there who has achieved that Generation X dream, then I don't think I want to know, as it will only make me feel like a failure. It feels like such a sanctuary today. Um, we've just gone through our first round of IVF unsuccessfully, and actually, currently, I'm having a miscarriage. and. I just felt um, such a warmth in the room and the experience, the sense of shared experience and opening up options I felt was really helpful because what we've found is sometimes going through IVF it feels like things are narrowing so all of the speakers gave me a sense of you know, expansion that there are choices to be made and you can kind of, um, although a lot of the time I personally have felt quite powerless in this, there are ways to reaffirm your sense of personal power. I sit at his desk and he's shuffling through his papers, can't find my files, clicking on his computer. Oh, he turns in his chair and asks me how I've been. I've been good. We're having problems with sleeping. We go back and forth, small talking and smiling. The kind of thing I guess they're taught in their training. This one, he ain't my regular. I think he's still being monitored. Mm. Mm. He takes off his glasses and turns his computer screen. Says things aren't good and we might need to try again, they're considering. Says all looks healthy but there's one little glitch. Says all looks healthy but we might need to wait a little longer before we begin. And I want to tell him I'm 30. 31 in December and my mother said I've got to speed up this bit. I want to tell him I'm the only one left and people are starting to ask certain things and my head starts banging and I can't find my words. And I find myself nodding along as he's making notes and I'm not in the room again. And I'm remembering again. The room starts spinning and the air stops flowing and I'm remembering. I'm remembering. I'm remembering my legs standing off the bed and I'm playing with my school tie. Tap on the table and hop on one foot. I never got why she was written that she was so angry with me. This isn't my fault and my head starts spinning and I'm thinking stupid things like, did I cause this? And when then churchmen right and they said that God was punishing me because I wouldn't repent. She kind of looks like she could cry, but she's got this look in her eye. Her left eyebrows twirling like she's got a twitch like a worm. Found its way under her skin and it's crawling around making it look like it's alive. She 
So I went to the infertility session this morning. So they did a couple of plays to portray different aspects of the fertility journey. They showed kind of the young person's version of the infertility journey, which was fascinating. Because that's something I went through on my, my own journey. So I was told by my doctor at 16, I wouldn't be able to have children, which was then, you know, seeing other people kind of portray that was really fascinating because that's really not something that's talked about a lot. To be honest, I didn't even think to talk to anybody about it. It just kind of happened and got on with life. I didn't even think having a conversation about it would be useful. I don't think I spoke to my mum about it. I don't think I told my friends about it. You know, it's just something that was there and that was it. It was very... But yeah, now like looking at this arena and seeing the support that's available now to people and it's more of a conversation it's so needed that support for people looking back now my grades started to suffer i had a not very healthy relationship with myself with my body with my relationships with guys you know it affected so many things that i didn't wasn't aware of completely didn't know but looking back now you can kind of see the where things started to happen and what difference it made. So yeah, it's totally needed. Matthew Dunster, nice to have you one-to-one after um, the performance of an excerpt from your play, Those Who Trespass. That's right. Am I right in that you just created it like a month or two ago? Well, it was it was performed um, a month or two ago for the first time. It was written um, as a long-term project working with um, students at Arts Ed. Strangely, perhaps, the students that are Gareth Farr's students who's written the play that we're all sort of here because of. Have you seen The Quiet House? Yeah, I saw it on Thursday night. How did it make you feel? It was really fantastic. I mean, I it was very personal for me because Gareth and Gabby, the writer and his wife, are mine and my wife's best friends in London and when they were going through IVF they lived 500 metres away from us and they'd been very supportive for us during our time with IVF and then while they were going through IVF we had three infant babies and of course we knew at the time it makes makes your friendships complicated you know and surprisingly complicated and we never stopped seeing them and never stopped loving them but it, I, it was quite tough to see a play about their loneliness you know because I don't doubt for a minute although they would never say this that we were kind of part of that you know so on a personal level it was tough on an artistic level I just thought it was fantastic and that what was really interesting about it was that it was written from the position of pain in, in my writing about the scenario I'd waited till I was in a position of strength and could sort of look back on it and sort of be more light-hearted about elements of it, a different... Uh, being able to look at it also as part of a wider social fabric because I wasn't stuck right in the middle of the epicentre when I, when I wrote it. And your play, the extracts that we saw, dealt with a kind of suggestion of failed IVF and then looking at adoption. Yeah. That experience, where have you drawn that from? Other friends of mine were were going through IVF at exactly the same time as us, and they were eventually given two options. I'm sure there were more, but the, the ones that they focused in on were sperm donation and adoption. And the, the, our male friend had decided that he just couldn't face sperm donation. It's interesting again, isn't it? That's when you feel you're in the same scenario as a couple, and then something about the choices that you're offered 
can potentially sever you as a couple because it's all that stuff about guilt and potential blame and so they went down the adoption route and we ended up with more information about the children than perhaps anybody would have liked because social services made a mistake and sent a file about the parents of the two young boys that at that, at that time were in foster care and what life had been like for them with their birth parents almost at exactly the same time as they were adopting so successfully and, and, and forming a really happy young family we were in King's with our three babies and we saw two young women have their children taken away from them by social services so the play is about both those scenarios really trying to look at this sounds really crude but where the babies go and where they came from in, in adoption terms where can people see the play uh, the next, the, so they've done one run at the Arts Head School and it's being done again in September as part of the High Tide Festival. Okay. And just finally, I'm curious to ask, because your father of triplets, as, as you mentioned, your tips for, or just one tip for a guy entering into fertility treatment, what would be the, the first thing that comes into your head? Mine would be, and this is, this. Uh, you can only ever really talk about your own experience, but I guess it's what we saw in Gareth's play, The Quiet House, as well, is don't be a passenger. I was always a passenger in an articulated lorry that was being <laughs> driven down the motorway by my missus. If I woke up in the morning, if she said it was a good day, it was a good day. If she said it was a bad day, it was a bad day. And, and that's good in one sense because you are the first level of support, but I could have found out more information. I waited to be informed by the information that my partner was discovering. I think not just to, for it to be fairer and more balanced, actually we could have covered more ground and wouldn't have been as shocked and bamboozled by some of the choices that came up against us if I'd been as rigorous with just trying to find stuff out ahead of the points along the journey that we were going on. Good advice. Thank you. <laughs> I went to the IVF experience session, which was um, with Tabitha Moses, and she had done um, the embroidered gowns depicting um, three women, her and two other women that she'd met, um, while going through fertility treatment. And it was sort of their story, I suppose, on the gowns. It included tears, and blood, miscarriages, eggs, sperm, needles, vials, pessaries, all that she'd embroidered on um, to the gowns. So it was um, really very personal um, thing to do, really. And then it was Julia Cocos who wrote um, a poem. Ghost lines. I really Ghost lines. Yes. It was really good. Really, really good. And. Um, yeah, it was just, it, yes, it was just like listening to some, you know, an audio story, really. Um, but really, really captured, you know, a lot of the, the, the struggle, the battle and the emotions when you're going through IVF. Um, and then there was also, um, Doctor, I'm probably dropping lots of names now, aren't I? But he was really good. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. Well, Sal from the CRGH. And, oh my God, if he'd been my doctor, it would have been a much nicer experience. We're in between doors of the theatre in the outside world. I'm, I'm with Aaron Dima, ahead of our session, The Male Experience, and you have this brilliant uh, set of photos about the men's room, and it's called Please Make Yourself Uncomfortable. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm really keen to talk to you about this, because I'm currently touring UK clinics, making a point of seeing 
the men's room and they're so varied. Yeah. Tell me how you got to, so, to make these. Yeah, I guess it's hard as an artist to go into these rooms and to go through these experiences and not in some way try to either document it or kind of look a little deeper into what's going on and see some reflection around me in the process. And that really was for me, it was really each step of the way, it was realizing how insane the process is, insane the, the how confusing, how difficult, how sort of troubled the process is of trying to have a kid for both people in a relationship or anyone in a, anyone in a relationship or anyone just trying to have a kid. And that, these rooms to me just expressed something in that confusion. There was something about the rooms that just felt out of kilter and that you could really take any real little part of those rooms, any section of the rooms and find some bizarreness, find whether it's the you know, box of porno mags, the box that looks like a toy box in a kid's room filled with porno mags, or the, why is it that every room that has a TV, the remote control is broken? Or why do the rooms sort of feel like a cross between a prison cell and a brothel? Or a toilet. This is my bedroom when I was like 11 years old. <laughs> It's like, <laughs> it's like, what are they trying to do? They're trying to not only get a sample, but they're also trying to mess with my head. <laughs> and here, it's like, how many people are going to be asking? <laughs> it's like, we're going to save some time when they want five of you to get <laughs> school term, uh, or one that you know probably started dropping out of fashion, I would guess, about 10, 15 years ago. It's interesting because it was actually first used in 1930, or at least in print in the US, in 1933, which was way earlier than I thought it was. I started thinking about that, and I started combining that with this idea of one of the challenges of doing IVF is not knowing who else is doing IVF, because people don't tend to talk about it all that much. I'm sure that's a thing that comes back, that's been coming back a lot today. And also, you don't hear about people who are doing it currently, and you very rarely hear about babies who were born because of IVF, um, even though the numbers are, are quite staggering nowadays. Um, and I was sort of thinking at the time, like, man, I think it would be really nice to know that there are successful IVF babies. Because at the time, I was just like, oh my god, this is the worst thing ever, and everything's going bad, and we're never going to have babies. It was also interesting because I have a friend who was one of the very, very early test tube babies. She was born in 1983. Uh, and she describes herself as a test tube baby. Uh, but when she first told me that, obviously, she was you know, one of very few at the time, she was 22, 23, one of very few 22, 23 year olds in the whole world that were test tube babies. Whereas nowadays, you know, in, in, I don't remember how many there were born, I'm sure we can get that number, but something like close to 3%, 3% of all babies, is that UK or is it UK? So that, that's, that's massive, right? I mean, that's like hundreds of thousands of babies. So, that's really interesting. So this week, just a few days ago, I launched a baby onesie uh, on Teespring uh, that says I'm a test tube baby that you can buy. 
is this a good idea? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I thought I would make it and find out and, and see because, you know, is this something that people would want to put on their baby? What if they, if they were testing babies, what if they were not born with IVF? Is that like bad? Would they not? You know, why, why is that, that feels wrong, right? So we're, we're having a baby now in, 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 at the end of the year. It's not a test tube baby. Would we put this on? I don't know, and I'm kind of thinking, well, yes, we should, even though it isn't. And then what kind of interesting discussion does that start? Because then somebody could be like, oh, well, that's not, your, so your baby's test your baby. It's like, well, no, but we did do IVF, so maybe it indirectly linked? I don't know, but like, is that important? You know, people wear like Superman onesies on their babies. It doesn't mean that they're <laughs> Superman. You know, like, you don't, you, it's not like you have to be truthful with your, your baby's clothing all the time. I'm finding today a really special experience and it's all about connection, that's what I'm finding between the women and some couples, some men here as well, and really connecting over their joint experiences and being really true to themselves and others what it's really like to go through infertility. And it's not just about the treatment or which clinic to choose, it's about the real life issues and the difficult choices they may have to make and how it might not always work out exactly how they thought it would and that was actually really interesting in the last discussion it wasn't just about if fertility treatment works it was about well what if it doesn't work as well and and what that really means and options like adoption and so on so yeah this is a one-of-a-kind event and I'm so pleased that I decided to come along because it's absolutely amazing yeah I found it really moving and uh quite inspirational listening to all the different speakers it was interesting to see two sides of the same coin really of ways of achieving motherhood um, it certainly made me think about my own situation a lot more um, I'm considering surrogacy or thinking that might be a road I have to go down um, and it was very painful to to think about that in the past and um, hearing people talk about it from a positive aspect was um, really powerful for me and um, I just got a real sense of warmth actually in the room from everybody listening and real support from each other which was nice to feel less isolated in my situation and knowing there are other people making very difficult decisions every day and I'm not alone in that. I, I just wanted to talk about fertility clinics actually. Yeah. I mean I'm 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 ten years past IVF and what what my experience was of confronting the absolute um, fact of the, the, the medical science it, at the outset it seemed like it would help us and at the in the end it couldn't. And we were lucky in some ways in that we had quite concrete evidence through um, um, pre-implantation diagnosis that it wasn't going to work for us and that the embryos were scrambled. But my, my feeling looking back on it now is that in all that process, I don't think I don't think people were deliberately dishonest with us, but but you didn't really ever think about the fact that you were likely to come out of that. There was a strong likelihood, even in your early thirties as I was, that there was a strong likelihood that you'd come out of there without a um, without a baby. Mm -hmm. And to, to layer onto that, you know, a decade on, egg freezing. With, with all the uncertainty around that, I, I, I sort of feel that, that that there's a danger of women being sold a, a, a myth at a time when they're incredibly vulnerable. And I, I feel that clinics have a responsibility to to be more honest. Yeah. And I, I mean, I know the XJPA does a lot about that, but, but, but still, I mean, it's partly that as, as a 
patient, as a woman going through treatment, you know, you kind of want to stick your fingers in your ears and go la 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 because you don't want to hear it. Mm. But actually, we need to hear it. Yeah. You, and, and also the kind of imagery that goes with the whole thing. I was looking at the fertility show website yesterday. Babies everywhere. On the bloody other Excuse me. Every day website. Your website. Your website. Your website. I'm sorry. Personal stories. I spoke to Alan Duran. Two moves to the HFE area. You've got a personal story section. There are 16 women. 13 of them take turn therapies, one who's already had two children, one who's miscarried but she's still trying, and one doesn't have her story on the PBS. And I'm sorry, the HFPA is in fact with you in this So I've had to leave it there uh, in the midst of what was a really interesting dialogue and I have got some more excerpts that I am going to see if I can share with you probably later on uh, in the fertility podcast schedule because tomorrow, Monday the 13th of June is another of my clinic episodes. As you know I've been working with Access Fertility touring clinics around the UK and tomorrow you're going to hear all about Bourne Hall Colchester. So thank you for listening. If you haven't subscribed please do via the fertilitypodcast.com website. You can do it in iTunes and just let me know how you're finding the episode yesterday at Fertility Fest. It was amazing to meet some of you that are listening and supporting this podcast. So let's all stick together continuing to give what is such an important issue uh, a voice. Until the next time.